This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you to the organizers here of CARTA uh, for inviting me to participate, and thank uh, all of you, great crowd, for coming out to, to see this fascinating topic explored. I tend sometimes to be accused of nihilism with regard to the origin of homo. Because my view is we actually know nothing about the origin of homo. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and the reason is simple in my view, is that while it is true that we have a pretty good fossil record of the genus Homo, the Homo lineage, as Bernard just finished explaining, by around two million years ago with some diversity and different, package, different adaptive packages in different species, Erectus, Habilis, Rudolfensis, on the assumption that these three forms shared a common ancestor at some point, that common ancestor lived older than two million years ago in a period of time in which we have not a fender and a tire and a piece of gear shift, but in which we have a fragment of tire tread, <laughs> which we have a fragment of a headlight. And we are trying to reconstruct a history, evolutionary history of a group for which we basically have a car wreck. <laughs> and this is what we have to solve. This is the problem we have to solve. And this comes from fieldwork. And I'm going to illustrate for you today, in, in my view, where I think the genus, the homo lineage arose and where we have to redouble our efforts for increasing the representation of this lineage older than two million years ago. Now, as Bernard ably suggested, the modern history of the study of the evolution of the genus Homo really begins with, the, with the Louis Leakey and his colleagues and the recognition of the species Homo habilis in 1964. Based on material from Bedouin at Olduvai Gorge dated to between around 1.7 and 1.75 million years, they discerned in the type specimen of the species, Olduvai hominid 7, what they thought was a human-like dexterous ability in the hands. They discerned a notable increase in endocranial volume, brain size, in relation to then-known Australopithecus species, from, mostly from southern Africa, and a reduction in tooth size, which they saw as emblematic of an overall gracilization of the chewing apparatus in almost a human-like arrangement. And putting these three characteristics together with the plentiful stone tools that had been recovered for years in these sediments, they arrived at the conclusion that this species, Habilis, belonged near the base of the genus Homo. So convinced were they of this conclusion that Philip Tobias, one of the co-authors of the species, was able to write in 1965 that Homo habilis represented the last remaining major gap in the Pleistocene evolution of the genus Homo, a story of human evolution, to quote him directly. And in this phylogeny, shown here from one of Tobias's papers, you can see the genus Homo is represented 
as a single, gradually evolving line characterized by uniquely human characteristics related to large brain size, reduced canine teeth, the perfection of bipedal locomotion. As we now see it, a slowing down of the growth trajectory, technology, language, and so forth. This was a package of characteristics seen in modern humans and thought to go back in time to at least two million years as an integrated whole along this slowly emerging lineage culminating in Homo sapiens. The problem was, of course, is that older than two million years ago, there was virtually no fossil record that could be confidently associated uniquely with our lineage. And so whether these characteristics emerged piecemeal, stepwise, and therefore each demanding a separate explanation for origin, or whether they emerged as a package together, where one explanation would take care of them all, could not be discerned. Now a lot has happened, as Bernard has pointed out, in the years since the early 1960s. And beginning in the 1980s, in large part due to the work that he and others have done in those years, we now see the genus Homo as a much more complicated uh, array of species. In my view, there are at least three broadly contemporaneous forms present at around two million years ago, whereas in 1964, the Leakeys would have said there's one in the genus Homo. Homo rudolfensis, Homo habilis, and Homo erectus. And one of the lessons that we have learned from the appreciation of greater diversity in our own genus at this period of time is the idea that there is not one adaptive package that can describe them all, but there are perhaps multiple ones. And the question is, which, if any, are germane to the origin of the lineage itself? Or are they all, in one form or another, subsequent developments to the establishment of the lineage? Following on Bernard's talking about Toyotas and Clades, my appreciation, my rendering of the information available from these three forms between around 1.7 and 2 million years ago is that they do, in fact, constitute a monophyletic group. This is not the place to go into a detailed rendition about the evidence for it, but I think it speaks fairly clearly to the idea that these three at two million did in fact share a single unified ancestry predating that time period, uh, 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 moving back towards the three million year mark. And the question is, where is it and who was it? And here's where we run up against the roadblock. Now, why is this important? More than just for the purposes of putting cladograms or phylogenies on the page, is because in the last decade or two, information from global climate change, paleoclimatic change, has made it clear that the time period in which many people suspect the Homo lineage arose was one of a very widespread, impactful change in global climate creating a cooled, a cooled uh, uh, expansion of ice sheets, reduction in sea levels, drying out of the African interior. And that time period has been, has been focused right after the three million year mark, 2.8, 2.7, and so forth, 
And that trying out of Africa has been seen as motive in the origin of uh, the robust Australopithecines, the origin of the genus Homo, even to stone tool manufacture. This has become the prevailing hypothesis that the complexification, if you will, of hominids and the origin of technology is all associated with the local impacts of these global changes. The problem is that there's no fossil evidence for the genus Homo that is informative on exactly what those changes were at this particular point in time. We do have, of course, Oldowan tools at around 2.6 million, and as Bernard and others have pointed out, perhaps that is a proxy for the genus Homo, or maybe it isn't. It's not outside the realm of possibility, given what we know about how chimpanzees can make tools, that some Australopith was capable of making them too. So questions and an absence of evidence. And here is the, the sum total of the fossil record of the genus Homo between two and two and a half million years ago. It would fit in a shoebox and leave room for a decent pair of shoes. <laughs> All of these fossils have been, have been promoted by one person or another, one group or another, as identifying the genus Homo older than 2.0 million years ago, and all of them have been doubted. And I'm not going to go through them here to, 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 point the, to point out the weaknesses and strengths of the various arguments, other than to say that the very fact that there's debate can be traced to the fact that there's relatively little evidence. And this is why groups return to Africa go to the field to African sites in East Africa and South Africa all the time, focusing on this time period, which in my view is one of the most intriguing of all the time periods in human evolution to increase our understanding of the fossil record. One area where the group from the Institute of Human Origins, which I direct at ASU, has been focusing on, of course, for years is Ethiopia. We've worked at the Lucy site more or less continuously since 1990. And colleagues of mine, Dr. Kay Reed at ASU and Chris Camposano and others, have expanded the work, the IHO work in Ethiopia, to a place called Lady Gararu. The scene here is slightly north and east of the Hadar area. What attracted them to this area? Two things. Knowledge that the, um, the environments represented by the sediments in this area look different from those that were very common and well understood in the Lucy time period, older than three million, some 20, 30 kilometers away at Hadar. And second, the suspicion verified since then that the rocks may actually represent a slightly younger time period. And that's important because at Hadar, as you'll see, we have Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis, up to about three million years. And then we jump across three quarters of a million years and we have a jaw of Homo with some stone tools at 2.3 million. Lucy, Homo, older, younger, gap in the middle, let's try to fill it. And that was their mission. Now, in the lower Awash Valley, these areas around Hadar and Middle Lady and Gona and Dikika and Waranzo Mile, there are excellent sediments going backwards in time from around three million years ago. 
And we have an excellent set of sediments at places like Gona and Hadar that take us forward from around 2.5 million years ago. It is the time period in between that is critical and is germane to the questions about where the three forms of Homo that we know of at 2 million perhaps emerged from. And these sediments are present amply, now well studied, in the Lady Gararu area, spanning in, time, spanning in time from around 2.8 million years to about 2.6 million years. And what's really important to understand about these sediments, and this is both an advantage and a disadvantage, is that they are not continuous across time, but instead are exposed in fault blocks, adjacent fault blocks, which means that each block of sediment is a unified slice of time separated from another block next to it, which has itself a unified period of time with slight gaps in between them. Disadvantage because we can't trace evolutionary events continuously, but advantage because fossils that come, demonstrably come from particular fault blocks can be narrowed to a very narrow range of environments and associations with other animal species, etc. So a plus and a minus. And here is the Lady Gararu area. Kay and her team have been working here for more than a decade before they found their first hominid looking at the fauna, looking at the geology, trying to understand the environments. And by the way, this is an area called the Laodoita Basin, and you can see here, here's one fault block, here's another fault block, and here's a third fault block. There are about three or four fault blocks just exposed in this one view. Very clearly delineated. You can see one of the faults running right through here. Now, back in 2013, Kay and her group of paleontologists we're surveying an area in the Laodoita Basin called the Garumaha block, just in the one fault block. And at the, at the base of this one hillside, there's a volcanic ash that is now well dated, very precisely dated to 2.822, plus or minus a handful of years, in the million year range. And um, on one winter's, our winter's day, uh, one of our graduate students at, at ASU, Chalacho Seom, was surveying up on this hillside and found this little jaw. That jaw eroded out of this hill, perhaps in a recent rainstorm, and resides about 10, maybe 12 meters above that volcanic ash. Right? And on the hillside, there are no sediments up above, younger, that the jaw could have you know, floated down from. It eroded out of that hillside, and it's around 10 meters above the tough. So here's the jaw after it has been cleaned up, and I'm here to tell you that it answers some questions. Answers some very specific questions. Doesn't answer all the questions. But there's a myth out here in paleoanthropology that unless you have a complete skeleton, you're not prepared to answer any meaningful questions. And I wish to dispel that myth. You know, since Raymond Dart named Australopithecus in 1925, there have been a plethora of hominid species named, recognized. Australopithecus africanus, Paranthropus robustus, Paranthropus boisei, Homo habilis, on and on. Many of them, if not most of them, on the basis of material that we here today would consider at best imperfect. 
a fragment of a jaw, a bit of a brain case, some teeth. And the fact of the matter is, is that in the intervening years, the vast majority of those species recognized on the basis of imperfect material have been verified as to be meaningful evolutionary units. We are not at sea when we have small fragments. We are limited in the type of questions we can ask. If complete skeletons were the answer to all of our questions, then Lucy would have settled once and for all the debate about when early humans made a, a commitment to terrestrial bipedality. Instead, she generated what is now going on to five decades of debate about that question. It depends on the question. And this question, the question that we address to this jaw, is it the same thing as Australopithecus at 2.8 million, or is it something different? And I engaged in that question with my former PhD student, Brian Vilmore, now at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Chilacho Seum, our graduate student who found the jaw. And we came to the conclusion that in many respects it differs from your standard issue generalized Australopithecus jaw. Seen here on the left is a nice jaw of Lucy species, Australopithecus afarensis, and on the right is a reconstructed from a scan of the specimen from Lady Guerrero. We noticed that the jaw differs rather, these two jaws differ rather remarkably. The afarensis jaw is typically long and narrow with fat molar teeth, primitive premolars, and so forth. And our major comparison was to something like this. One of the jaws from the Demonisi site dated to about 1.8 million years, which is attributed to Homo erectus. And there's a much greater similarity in the shape of the dental arch, in the form of the teeth, the premolars being symmetrical, and so forth, to this 1.8 million year old Homo erectus jaw than to, um, than, to, uh, than to Lucy's species. And it extends also to the architecture of the jaw, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but underneath the premolar, the afarensis jaw is characterized by a highly sculpted out contour like a chimpanzee, probably due to the very large canine teeth, absent in the Lady Gararu jaw, the, uh, the back part of the mandible where the vertical part called the ascending ramus arises from the body of the jaw is located in the, in the lady jaw well back over the third molar, not forward as it is in, in Lucy's species over the second molar. And the upper and lower boundaries of the, of the, of the, of the mandibular uh, borders beneath the teeth and at the base uh, are, are more or less parallel. And, and in Australopithecus, they're not gets shallower to the rear. And by the way, it's also true of Australopithecus africanus, which is slightly closer in age to the lady jaw in South Africa. The same kind of, of thing. So when we made the comparison to jaws of the genus Homo, later in time, obviously, because we don't have much in the two and a half to three million year period, the similarities were very apparent to us. This is a jaw that exhibits characteristics that forecast anatomy that is common, the most common anatomical pattern in jaws of the genus Homo younger than two million. So we published it in the, not quite a year ago in the Journal of Science as a 2.8 million year old jaw of the genus Homo. Now, does it answer questions about what were the adaptive packages present early on in the genus, in the lineage leading to us? Of course not. 
But what it does do is that it puts one data point in an area that is otherwise a void in the evolution of our own genus. Question is, what kind of environment did it live in? Did it live in a dry environment? Did it live in an open one? Germane to the questions about what drove early evolution of Homo. And data that's been put together by Kay Reed and given to me for this purpose shows that this jaw is found in a context of animal species that lived in essentially grassland environments. Very different in terms of how open or closed the habitats were compared to um, time periods in which Lucy's species lived. And this is just a couple hundred thousand years later. Now this, I, I hasten to add here, I am not asserting that the origin of the genus Homo is due to a drying out of the environment. But one thing we can say, because of the very confined time period of the Garumaha fault block in which the mandible and the fauna on which this inference is made suggest that the modal environmental signal at 2.8 in this area is one essentially of a grassland environment. And we can, we can see that by looking at some of the other animal fossils that have been found associated with the horizon from which that mandible has come. This is the Garumaha block. These are L. salafine bovid frequencies and the horse frequencies, both of which, of course, are well-known grazers. And together, in the Garumaha block, they constitute nearly 40% of the macrofauna. Excludes elephants and hippos and stuff. I'm not saying it's dry. We're saying it's open. So it's 40% of the macrofauna. And that is very impressive compared to the frequencies back in Lucy's time, starting just 200,000 years earlier. Opens up areas for inquiry. And finally, some new data coming out of Kenya from Sonia Harman's group suggests that stone tool use, in fact, began not with the genus Homo, maybe, but perhaps as long ago as three and a half million years uh, when we have Australopithecus. And if these finds are verified, it opens up a whole new range of possibilities looking at the adaptive packages that constitute the ancestral platform from which the genus Homo emerged. And so, to finish up, here we have Lady Gararu, here we have our formerly first appearance, our former first appearance of stone tools, now pushed back here, perhaps, and does that imply that the genus Homo itself has even an earlier origin than we think of at 2.8, perhaps back as far as Lucy, or could Lucy herself have been the first stone tool maker? Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.